Hi everyone, welcome to this Network Capital book discussion with uh, Anirudh Suri, an investor, author, and former McKinsey consultant. Anirudh, welcome to Network Capital. It's the first of your sessions here, but we look forward to having you back in the Web3 and Crypto Fellowship as well. How are you today? Thank you so much, Utkash. It's a pleasure to be here. Doing well? Uh, swimming in the NFT world? Sorry, can you say that again, Utkash? I think I lost you there for a second. Oh, yeah. I think the internet is a bit patchy, it seems. I was wondering how you were doing. And, uh, you know, the early days of writing this book, I feel that a book often writes itself before things happen. So talk to me about how this book was conceptualized. Sure, sure, sure. No, so, you know, for the last decade or so, Utkash, I think you know this already, but uh, I've been in the technology venture capital and startup world now for the last decade or so in, in India primarily, but also a little bit in the US. And uh, my, uh, of course, my engagement with technology has been older than that. I've, you know, when I was working at McKinsey as well, I was working, when I was in the US, I was working with several clients there that were either on the tech challenger side of things, who were trying to challenge uh, established incumbents, or sometimes working with um, incumbents who were trying to figure out how to stave off new digital challengers. And uh, mm. I'd also spent some time with, uh, you know, the IT ministry as a policy advisor in, in Delhi. And uh, through all of these experiences, Utkash, I had had a very different lens, I would say, on how technology was shaping our world and how it was shaping our society, how it was shaping our economic destinies as individuals and as a nation. And, uh, you know, in the last few years, as technology has collided um, with geopolitics, with policy, with economics so much, in the back right. of my mind was this idea that, you know, most people in the tech world and outside were viewing tech very narrowly and the impact of tech very narrowly, right? There was a very siloed view of the tech world Within the tech world, for example, in the tech VC and startup world, you know, as entrepreneurs, as VCs, we are obsessed with startup fundings and valuations and unicorns and, and things like that. And from outside of the tech world, you know, mostly the view was either one of uh, disbelief that there was something too speculative about this sector that people in the traditional world didn't quite grasp, or there was this feeling of helplessness that, you know, you've sort of missed the boat. You just don't understand what's going in the, going on in the tech world. And, you know, there was this feeling of like being left out. Right. Um, and from my perspective, you know, then I thought that actually it'd be very helpful to put out a book that helps build out that big picture for people, both within the tech world who had that siloed view and for people outside of the tech world who seem to have this like mystified way of looking at the tech world. Uh, to put out that big picture that puts into context how tech is shaping our world, not just today, but to try and place it in a historical context as well, right? So, um, and also explain to them how, explain to folks how tech is shaping the world order on one hand, but also how it's shaping the economic 
competitiveness of nations on the other, right? Um, and how it's shaping us as humans and as yeah. a society. Right? So my really was to provide that uh, big picture perspective, I would say. And you've succeeded. The book is doing quite well in the market. You've done something fascinating is that uh, uh, you've launched a bunch of NFTs uh, with uh, specialized features associated with it. Tell us about that because, you know, at heart, Network Capital loves any community builder trying to do interesting things. So when we learned that you had created NFTs to accompany your book, we were just delighted. And we said, we got to have him back for the for the crypto fellowship. <laughs> yeah, no, as I was writing the book, right, Utkash, and I'm sure you were uh, very much aware, like the whole Web3 movement was really picking up pace, right, towards the end of last year and early this year. And both in, you know, the U.S., but also here in India and other parts of the world. And, you know, one of the things I've tried to convey in my book, the key message I'm trying to convey in the book is that you've got to adapt to this new game, right? The great tech game that I call uh, in the book. And I think that it would have been uh, almost a, a big mistake for me to not actually say or see how the book, right, in a traditional print format would need to adapt, right? And I think uh, for the new tech world. And, uh, you know, one of the main reasons why I created the NFTs along with the book was to say that, you know, as part of the larger creator economy out there, today artists and musicians have definitely latched on to the, uh, to the NFT trend, I would say, or the NFT wave. But authors had not, right? And I believe authors are as much, you're a, you know, you're an author yourself, uh, Utkar, so you'll, I think, agree with me that, Authors are also creators today. Um, and uh, as part of this whole big creator economy, engaging with Web3 and NFT formats, I thought it'd be a very good idea to bring the NFT world closer to the publishing world and the author community as well, so that authors worldwide can start to think about how to engage with their respective uh, you know, patrons or their communities. Um, in, a, in a in a more tech savvy way, right? So that was really one of the main reasons to to create NFTs. The other reason, uh, Utkarsh, from my perspective, was that you know one of the other key messages in my book is to towards the end is to say that you know whether you're in the tech world from a venture capital standpoint or as an entrepreneur, tech inclusion has to be a key focus for all of us, right? Whether we are policymaker, whether we are a entrepreneur, whether we are a venture capitalist in the tech community, no matter how we engage, tech inclusion and inclusiveness to make sure that a much broader set of people engage with tech in productive ways and creative ways has to be a key goal, right? And uh, and hence I said that, you know, whatever, whatever uh, proceeds come out of the sale of some NFTs, so I've done NFTs in two ways. One is through sale of the NFTs and second is giveaways. From the sale of NFTs, whatever proceeds come, I'm hoping to give them to uh, two organizations that are working on tech inclusion. It's fascinating. I so appreciate this, uh, trying to bridge the digital divide through crypto and writing. That in itself should be you know, explored further. I, um, I think that the book is structured in an interesting way. Anirudh, do you want to talk to us about how you came up with those five parts in the book and uh, about the architecture of different chapters? Sure, sure. Uh, so, you know, Utkash, to be honest, my own personal uh, key interest when I started writing the book and even when I was 
uh, writing, you know, just shorter pieces before the book is largely around tech and geopolitics, how, how tech is shaping the geopolitics in the world order today. Right. And how specifically tech is shaping geopolitics. Right. I think a lot of us are aware that today tech is starting to shape geopolitics. But my key goal or my key interest was to really specify how in particular detail or how specifically tech was shaping geopolitics or different aspects of it, whether it was the future of war, whether it was cyber, whether it was espionage, whether it was alliances between nations or even the geopolitics of the tech infrastructure. Right. And these are some of the chapters you'll see or some of the sections you'll see in the in the book where uh, in the geopolitics section but you know as i started writing the book utkarsh i realized that in order to give that big picture i could not have written a book that was only focused on geopolitics because tech is just shaping so much more so you know the history section came about because i needed in my head to also set today's happenings or what we are living through today in a longer historical context to explain to folks that we are living through a time as transformative as the advent of the industrial revolution, but also as important as the advent of agriculture back in the day, right? 10,000 years ago. And even the advent of global trade, right? Um, and so I had to put in that historical section to try and give that historical context also evolved to, to, to also explain to folks how the economics Today, the digital economy is in a way replacing the industrial economy, much like the industrial economy had replaced in a way uh, the agriculture and uh, artisanal economy that existed prior to the industrial revolution. And uh, and then the economic section came in. And, you know, my editor and I, when I finished pretty much with these sections, you know, we, uh, we were having a chat and she said to me, covered a fairly broad swath of topics, but really what's missing here still is how it's shaping society, how it's shaping us as individuals, how it's shaping our interactions, our behavior, uh, et cetera. And, and you, know, and, you know, for better or for worse, we added the, the societal section as well. So, uh, so it's become a fairly comprehensive uh, uh, exploration of how tech is shaping the world, but it sort of almost happened organically. There were planned to begin with. I, I think it's awesome, especially the chapter on or the section on society uh, is such an important one because one of the things that everyone in tech and investing needs to do is to demystify what's happening and make it accessible to people who may not be from that domain. And I think that section of the book does a pretty interesting job of. Um, communicating the essence. So Anirudh, talk to us about the history of tech. You seem to be somebody who enjoys history, diving deep into uh, Pax India, Pax uh, China, Pax uh, Technologica, as you say we are in right now. But how is the history of technology shaping the way it is what it is today in, say, the growth of uh, political tensions between countries, in the way companies are competing with each other would love your thoughts on it yeah no uh, i'm a big history buff with Karsh, and i uh, i enjoy to explain sometimes what they but also to see how things have changed or not and i'll tell you one of the key things i realized when i when i was doing my research on the history side and i spoke to several historians who've covered right 
going all the way back to agriculture as i said but also more recently to how let's say the telegraph or certain other technologies like the telegraph had shaped the geopolitics of our world even a century ago right hmm. and one of the key lessons that emerged from kash what i have tried to convey in the actually not much changes right a lot of the kind of geopolitical tensions we are seeing today because of tech and otherwise are very hmm. clear and key parallels with how things have happened in the past right uh, so i talk about even in the agricultural and trade era how geopolitics the advent of geopolitics as we know it today as we understand it today as we study it today really goes back to uh, the agri era when trade started to happen in the mediterranean in sort of the middle east, what we call the middle east today and and this idea of choke points right that we talk about today in the context of let's say oil pipelines or sea lanes of communication during through the malacca straits and the suez canal these have yeah. actually been choke points for a long long time right one second this idea of colonization that we many many of us in india think is a phenomenon that's 300 years old is actually centuries old right um there was starting to be colonial outposts back in the mediterranean about 3000 years ago hmm. right the idea of monopolizing trade routes goes back to at least the roman empire if not earlier right um and and the contrast between conceptions in the west sometimes of how trade needs to be monopolized i found was very different from the concept of trade in the indian ocean region the indian ocean region seems to be uh, historically one that has conceived of trade as a multiplayer game not as one that needs to be monopolized right and to me that offers lessons for why today india for example still you know bats for a multipolar world right and many nations in this part of the world are batting for multipolarity whereas sometimes the west seems to have this idea which i can i you know i trace back in the book going back to the roman empire and even before that of trying to monopolize right of being one one winner unipolar world right um the british were a clear example of that right uh, where they wanted to be the sole superpower or sole sort of leader in the world so you know you go back into history and you realize there are lots of lessons for today and lots of things become clear uh when you sort of go back into history and see how geopolitics has been shaped by trade geopolitics has been shaped by other key shapers in our history the other more immediate anecdote i'll share which i found very interesting was uh, you know more recent 100 years ago the british set up telegraph cables right first between the uk and the us right that was the first telegraph cable that was set up between north america and uh britain but uh, you know soon the britain british empire came to control telegraph uh, as an industry the companies that were laying the cables the companies that had the ability to repair those telegraph cables were all british the ships that could go out and do this in deep seas were all british owned so when world war 1 broke out with kash right between the uh, the uk and uh, germany one of the first things the uk does, does at that time is cut off cables that were linking germany to other parts of the world to cut off their communication their ties their financial information access all of that right and and so i draw that analogy to say that you know telegraph cables were actually laid during peace time to promote business and connectivity but when it came to war time and conflict they were weaponized very quickly right 
And I lay the, 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 the framework to say that, listen, there are analogs today where the internet infrastructure that is laid under sea cables, data centers, all of that connectivity is today also controlled by very few firms, right? And it's not unconceivable to say that tomorrow as geopolitical conflict worsens, that the internet infrastructure will also get weaponized, right? And hence the concern in, you know, places like China and Russia sometimes where they fear that they will get cut off and now they are developing their own national sovereign internets as they call it. To, uh, to make sure that they are not cut off, right? So, so there are very, I, I, I think, lots and lots of historical analogs that you come up with once you start digging into history. There is so much to unpack here. Uh, I don't know where to begin, but let's try. So first, uh, let's talk about monopolies. So Peter Thiel, who, you know, people in venture capital quote quite a bit, uh, says that, you know, every business essentially wants to be a monopoly and competition is for losers, etc. And that that school of thought still exists. Like most people in Silicon Valley, now India, London, etc. would say that, yeah, you know, we are all working towards building, becoming category leaders, becoming monopolies. But you're saying that this is not what you call the traditional Eastern thought. Plurality has be, always been uh, a defining element of it. How do you comment or how do you think that the future of, uh, uh, say, the strain of Indian thought, how would that, would it also become westernized, you know, monopoly loving, or will it manage to retain a balance between both? You know, uh, I think that's a great question, Utkarsh. I think that uh, it's hard for me to predict where things will go necessarily, but I, I think that, so two things. One, I think that the idea of monopolies in a given sector, as Peter Thiel has talked about, that's the only way to make money if you have a monopolistic dominance of your sector or category. From an economic standpoint, tech, a tech-driven economy is lending itself more and more to that kind of model, right? That didn't necessarily exist in the industrial world so much. The industrial world typically had a few leaders in any given category or sector. Now, the tech sector, by virtue of its network effects, by virtue of the concepts underlying the, the tech businesses of today, uh, are lending themselves even more to monopolies, as Peter Thiel has, uh, uh, has pointed out, also, and others have pointed out. Right? And I think that that will be the case no matter where those tech businesses are coming up, whether in the East or the West. Right, I think that's the nature of the tech economy or the tech businesses that we see. That's point right. number one. But point number two, very quickly, I point out that this is largely this whole idea of a winner-take-all model uh, or the network effect largely exists on the B2C side, on the business-to-consumer platform side, right? not necessarily on the B2B side. The B2B or the business-to-business -business part of the tech economy is still fairly fragmented. And by its own nature of its fundamental uh, characteristics are not necessarily winner-take-all. So I think that there's one, there's hope there, right? Uh, that some of the B2C markets might actually, by virtue of the tech, nature of the tech-driven businesses, might see more and more monopolies. And that's where governments or other tech companies will have to really compete to prevent such monopolies. That's one. But second, I think the 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 ray of hope in my mind hmm. comes from two things one unlike the industrial era where the largest companies were being built largely in western europe or out of western europe 
and the US. Today, that's not the case. Right? The great tech game, as I argue in the book, is no longer a, a, a regional game. Right? The competition mm -hmm. is global now. Right? The com competition for tech leadership is absolutely global. India is taking a claim for it. Europe is trying. The US and China are obviously leaders. But Southeast Asia as a region is also trying. Right? So I think that inevitably what will ha happen as a result is because this time it's a global game. <clears throat> And all of these players are fairly well positioned. Of course, you have leaders and some like Europe and India are still not necessarily uh, the top layer in the tech great tech game. But I believe that by virtue of this global game being played out, the values that will shape the nature of this competition will end up being global, right? And not necessarily just Western or just Eastern, right? So I think right. that there'll be this battle or war between the values being propagated by, let's say, an India or a China or Europe or the US, and so on and so forth. And I think as a result, we'll see some kind of balance. That's number two. Number three, I would say, what's very interesting, I think, Utkarsh, on this question, um, is this idea that of digital colonialism, right? I, I have a chapter in the book about digital colonialism. Yeah, it's very interesting. Which talks about whether fears of digital colonialism are unfounded or whether they are actually you know, serious concerns that need to be considered, right? And whether digital colonialism is inevitable, that we'll end up losing all our data, much like we lost territory back in the day, we'll lose our data to just a select few firms that are maybe the modern day analogs of the East India Company. I explore that question and where I end up on that is, thankfully, all the countries that were colonies earlier in the industrial or colonial era, the memory of colonialism is very, very much alive in our everyday life, our politics, foreign policy. Right? Colonialism often shapes a lot of our uh, policies today. Right? We don't want to be colonized as an or as a country. Plus, so that, I think that will make sure that digital colonialism doesn't actually happen maybe as stealthily as it might have happened or as inevitably as it happened back in the day. I think countries are going to fight back a lot more this time around because of that memory that we have. Second, what's very interesting is you're finding that the big tech firms today are actually competing now with each other um, in ways that I think are gonna make sure that digital colonialism doesn't necessarily happen. And I think in a way, the battle between Facebook, or Meta and Apple on privacy is an example of that, where they are gonna fight and they're gonna compete in ways that will make sure that the consumer still wins today. Unlike the colonial era where I think the consumers didn't really have a say. So I think today that's again going to be a different element that maybe didn't exist in the earlier world. Uh, but I think it's a fascinating question. I think it still needs to be unpacked and seen how it plays out. No, thank you for answering it in, in such a broad and well-rounded way. Anirudh, uh, let's explore what's happening uh, in the world of um, you know internet infrastructure. So China, Russia, Ukraine, what happened there? What are some lessons that we can learn from uh, the way tech influences, say, the future of war? Sure, sure. Uh, so, you know, I think that uh, personally for me, that's actually one of the most uh, interesting and fascinating pieces uh, that, that I look at in the book also. Um, you know, the future of war, according to me, Utkarsh, is clearly going hybrid. When I say hybrid, I mean that, you know, the physical piece will still remain. But I think the tech element of it will continue to grow, right? Uh, but both will remain. It's not an either or. 
question. A lot of people frame it as an either or. I don't believe that it's going to be either or, but I think it's going to be a hybrid, uh, what I call the hybrid war doctrine also in the book, or rather, I don't call it that. I think military leaders have uh, termed it such that the hybrid war doctrine, I think, is going to be the way the future of war is going to play out, where countries will see, much like they used to see Navy, Air Force, and uh, the army or land-based war as the three domains. Now the uh, additional domains that are getting added are on the space and cyber side, right? Or what some call space and the information domain, right? Information domain being even broader than cyber. And I, what I add in the book is also the bio domain, right? Bio warfare is again another emerging uh, domain where, uh, you know, some people have of course claimed um, and these are just uh, today just theories, but uh, people have said said that even the coronavirus could have been a, 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 a bioweapon that got leash, unleashed either uh, intentionally or unintentionally. Right? But that bio domain has, is an equally uh, important domain to be looked at. So space, cyber, and bio are three domains that are getting added in a way to the land, air, and sea domains that war has typically happened on. And, um, you know, the, the conception of War now has to be broadened, both in uh, the army and the military domain, but also in people who study this and policymakers who have to think about this and plan for it. Um, right, that's on the theory side. But really, you know, what's interesting is if you look at Ukraine uh, and Russia that you mentioned uh, just now, uh, a lot of people talked about the Russia-Ukraine crisis as saying that, listen, look, tanks came in this time. People like troops came in. Look, like this whole idea of cyber war is completely hogwash. That's not how war is going to happen. War is still going to be happening World War War II style. World War II is how, you know, people were seeing this. But, you know, as I see it, Utkarsh, that's not the case. I believe that Russia did, chose the domain that was least expected from it, in a way. People expected this to be a cyber attack. Wasn't from the Russian side, clearly, right? It was a, it was a completely like on the ground uh, attack, but that was the least expected. And hence, from a strategic surprise element perspective, probably, you know, uh, uh, an unexpected move, right? Uh, that's one. Second, if you look at how the West has responded, it's clearly been a tech war, right? Big tech firms from the US and the West have come out and said, we're going to withdraw our services, we're going to withdraw our products. Cybersecurity teams of private big tech firms have come to uh, the rescue of Ukraine's cyber space. Right. Uh, obviously, you must have also heard about how several Russian banks were excluded from the SWIFT platform and, uh, and so on and so forth. So the response in many ways from the West has made it clear that this was and is as much a tech war as people could have expected. Right? Uh, so I think the future of war is going to be hybrid. Some nations where strengths lie in the cyber domain will use that. Countries that believe traditional domains might be their strengths might use that. And I think inevitably, you'll, in every war, you'll see a mix of uh, strategies and tactics being used now that combine elements of both tech and non-tech. War happens because of a wide range of reasons. But uh, one thing that leads to it, I hear, is the lack of trust or suspicion. And uh, when we say think about the balkanization of the internet or certain countries trying to build their own internet or their own cryptocurrencies, um, how do you analyze that? Because the fundamental of a lot of this is radical cooperation. 
but uh, when you start creating your own internet your own currency what does that signal to the world and uh, how do leaders from such countries rationalize it to themselves if at all yeah yeah so let me let me give you a historical uh, analog or a, or a quick anecdote right so back in the day again using that telegraph example i mentioned earlier you know back in the day when britain was setting up its own telegraph cables to its network of colonies around the world uh while they were one of the first to do it other european nations then quickly followed france russia others right now at some point you know a few decades into building these telegraph cables you know there's a quote from this one of the select committees of the british parliament of that time in 1866 that i quote in the book suddenly britain realized that its telegraph communication was going via land in certain parts through france right um uh, another country is to india right now and suddenly in this in one of the select committee quotes one of the one of the members of the british parliament in this select committee says that listen we can't have this happen because it's clear that five copies are getting made of every communication we are sending and the french and others are like reading all our communication we can't have this happen and the Brit- british parliament at that time then decided to uh come up with what they call the all red network now what was this all red network all red network was now these cables that were linking britain to its colonies directly and only for the exclusive use of the british right now and then every other country followed or tried to follow right they were not right. as successful as the british of their dominance of the british dominance as i was mentioning of the telegraph industry but every country then tried to follow right the french tried to have these exclusive cables to their colonies etc etc right um, yeah now what's interesting from that historical story is to say that today something similar is going on but it's not new right the chinese have realized the russians have realized the americans have realized i hope that india has also realized that a lot of our internet infrastructure today by virtue of who controls it who runs it who builds it is very very easily tapped is very very easily hacked not just your phones your internet cables themselves yeah wifi right. everything yeah uh, right and, and so it's not so unexpected or mind boggling that certain countries that are emerging powers or that are big powers are trying to build their own networks right so china for example huawei is known for its 5g networks but huawei also had a subsidiary called huawei marine networks hmn that i refer to in the book that is actually now one of the biggest uh, layer of submarine cables linking china to africa linking china to latin america and so on and so forth right and uh, there's french companies that american companies etc that are building internet infrastructure in japanese but each country has to now think about okay what its strategy has to be now why is this happening because unfortunately while i believe that economics is the key driver of geopolitics unfortunately sometimes geopolitics takes over and drives yeah. the economics Right? and that's what's we, happening now the politics taken over and now is driving economic policy decisions and i believe that now given the geopolitical last year or two three years unfortunately we are heading towards a splinter net a splitting of the internet infrastructure of the world where now unfortunately we are going to see a dual set of systems infrastructure financial systems settlement systems operating systems 
all of this almost getting duplicated in the world. I think it's inevitable now, Utkarsh, unfortunately. When I started writing the book, it was still, I think, uh, uh, you know, to be determined sort of thing. But now, to me, it's seeming inevitable that we will end up seeing dual or parallel systems getting built around the world. And its economic implications obviously will be immense. I think countries like India, which are emerging tech powers that would benefit from actually having access to all markets of the world, will unfortunately have a smaller economic pie to now go after. Agreed. Let's unpack Web 3.0 in this uh, splinter net world. What, what, is, what does it mean? Is it a new movement? Um, do you think that uh, the third wave of the internet will also be balkanized at some point in time? Yeah, so I think that, you know, it's going to play out in various different domains very differently, right? On the economic domain, what's going to happen is that uh, if, if your uh, operating systems become different in certain parts of the world, then, of course, the apps that are being built on those operating systems will be limited to the markets where those operating systems are dominant, right, or existent. So that's one, right? Um, the countries or companies that control those operating systems will be economic winners, right, because they, much like Apple and Google today, benefit from having a marketplace of apps built on Android or Apple. They benefit, right, Google and Apple. Similarly, on the other side, whoever's building out the dominant operating systems, let's say for certain other countries, those companies, those apps will benefit, right? And uh, that's, and, and you know, there'll be many layers of economic uh, implications of that, right? Which venture capitalists succeed where, which entrepreneurs succeed where, which apps have what size of market to access, etc. right? Um, that's one. Uh, the second is, I think that geopolitically or politically, a lot of choices will have to get made that will have implications in the global governance space, right? So if you look at, and I talk about this in one of the global governance chapters, uh, sections, right? Where in the post-World War II era, right? We had these Bretton Woods institutions that were for more or less covering the entire world in their uh, scope, right? Now what's happening is that in the global tech governance institutions of the world, which many of us don't know about, but they do exist. They're not as prominent as the UN or the UN Security Council, but organizations like ITU, ICANN, and so on and so forth that I talk about in the book, these organizations are getting geopolitically like, split as well. Right? And there's a battle for control of these standards, uh, driving governance bodies. You're looking at you know uh, the same geopolitics that we're seeing play out in war and economics playing out in these global governance institutions. So now what's the implication of this? The implication is that global governments might also get regionalized now because many people believe that some of these global governance institutions will not be able to be effective. Many people have criticized, you know, the UN and many other global bodies today for that, right? Um, uh, for their ineffectiveness in the, in the, in the face of, you know, most recent events as, as well uh, yeah. in Russia and Ukraine. And so there's the implication that not only we'll have regional governance bodies, Right, where this idea that there should be global governance is getting challenged in itself. Right, so a lot of people are now starting to write that we might see regional governance frameworks and regional governance institutions in South Asia and 
Southeast Asia and Europe and America, but there will not necessarily be a global body. The implications of that are going to be immense again, right? I mean, war is going to be that much more likely, conflict is going to be that much more likely, and in a way, the balkanization of the economy of geopolitics and global governance is is, is a likely scenario. Now, what does this mean for India? Right? Let's talk about that for a second. Now, India. One, you know, for the longest time, Utkarsh, we've been trying for a UN Security Council seat, right, for hmm. several decades, right? Now, one of the things I write about in the book as part of the game plan for India is to say that, listen, for these tech governance institutions that are getting built, that are gaining influence and prominence, make sure that you have a seat at the table today. We're already 10 years too late, by the way, right? Uh, today, Europe and China dominate these global governance institutions. India is nowhere to be seen. The U.S. is trying to claw its way back, right? They've also lost a little bit of that plot for some time in the last eight, seven, ten, seven, eight years. So now mm -hmm. India must make sure that a seat at the table in all of these tech governance bodies as well. That's one, right? Policy implication or suggestion for India. But more importantly, from an economic standpoint, we have to be ready now to figure out how we will, our companies will chart out their global path or their uh, path in different regions, right? Uh, suddenly, if Russia and China are no longer markets for you, and countries that are aligned towards Russia and China, let's say, not markets for you, now you are looking at a smaller chunk of the world than you could have otherwise targeted, right? So, as as an economic decision, also you have to now the emphasis of the world, the TCSs of the world have to think now how are they going to make up for that business elsewhere? One. Startups coming out of India have to think now, if you're going to be limited by markets, you're going to be limited by collaboration, limited by access to capital, how are you going to adapt to that, right? Uh, so there'll be lots mm -hmm. of economic implications also for India that we'll have to think about, not just on the global governance and geopolitics side, but on the economic, right? Yeah. And then there's the question of whether India can chart a path, right? Can India have some version of a non-aligned path that we, uh, you know... <laughs> very famously or infamously were the leaders of during the Cold War era. Is there a third path that come out that India could be a leader on that could be led by, let's say, our digital public infrastructure-driven strategy, right? Our UPI, Aadhaar, these are our soft exports today. Can we offer the world a path that's not so much a Cold War-esque type scenario where the world gets split, the world's internet gets split, but where we we build an infrastructure or a set of platforms that are open, that are interoperable, but are not monopolized, which is the main concern of geopolitical opponents. They don't want something monopolized by an opponent. So can hmm. India offer a path, a vision that could actually maybe solve this problem? Right? right. And that's where I say like a lot more things, a lot more uh, visualization has to happen of what UPI and Aadhaar and our digital public infrastructure could offer to the world beyond just saying that, hey, let's export our UPI to Philippines or let's export our UPI to like Nepal or Kenya, right? There's a broader vision or broader roadmap that India could work on. I'd love for you to explain and build on that because you're saying something powerful that it cannot be just about, you know, copying a blueprint from India to another place. How do we actually get the bang for the buck? How do we solve the problem for humanity? How do we build from India for the world? Would love for you to share your insights as an investor, as an author, 
as an entrepreneur. So, so here, if I put on my investor hat or my tech hat, right, for a second, Utkarsh, as opposed to the foreign policy one or the geopolitical one, right? Now, there, there's there's uh, uh, a piece in the section of the book where I talk a little bit about this um, because even my thinking is evolving on this as we speak. But yeah. one of the ways in which we can think about this is to look at how Apple and Google have um, mapped out their strategy, right? I, I mentioned Android OS and iOS earlier. You know, the strategy adopted by Google and Apple Utkarsh was not to say that I want to export Android to the user in rural India, right? That was not the strategy. The strategy was slightly different was to say that I'm building out this OS or buying out an OS in the case of Google, like they bought out Android. I'm now gonna make it really easy for developers around the world to build a marketplace of apps on top of this. And then I'm gonna rely in a way on these apps to go out and get users. And I'm gonna keep a chunk of the profits and the revenues from all of these apps for myself as being the infrastructure led or the operating system led, right? Now, what does that mean in, 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 uh, in the case of now the Indian strategy, right? As you asked. Now, as I see it, and I, what I write in the book is that in a way, India is, even if we are not building out intentionally or internationally, we are now building out a digital OS for the world, a digital operating system for the world, upon which now we have two choices. Either we can say we want to export the OS, the operating system layer, or the infrastructure layer, or the protocol layer, UPI, Aadhaar, or we can say that now we're going to make it so easy for the world to build out a marketplace of apps on top of the layers that we have built. And then let those apps do the work. Yeah, right? that's a fascinating analogy. Right. And, and and so I think that, again, like, as I said, like, you know, I, I would love to get your thoughts also and thoughts of listeners that, you know, are or on the on the NC network, National Network Capital community and others. But I think this kind of thinking needs to be evolved further, right? I mean, but this is just one way in which I have thought so far about how we could completely reorient how we think about uh, digital public infrastructure from an economic standpoint as well. A hundred percent. We shall actually put this question out on, on our website and our app and let's see what people say. But I do feel that this is a subject where all Indians should have an opinion, or at least they should learn enough to have an opinion, because this really affects India, affects the world. And it's a strategy discussion of what, what do you want to do? Do you want to, uh, which game do you want to play? And uh, it has significance. So thank you for laying it out so clearly. But uh, you also make a point of cost arbitrage that India has been known for in the past. To, India should not be satisfied with that. Um, tell us more about your vision for India. You've laid out a great framework. Uh, tell us about how we transcend this cost arbitrage model beyond isolated examples. I think I'm not a fan of, oh, two companies did it, so hence proved. So <laughs> let's look at you know principles. No, absolutely. That's, I absolutely agree that sometimes isolated examples are used to uh, pat ourselves on the back and yeah. uh, that does not constitute a strategy or, or, or a vision. 
completely agree. I think, uh, see, I think, you know, one of the things that first and foremost, we need to all understand, right? Whether we are entrepreneurs, whether we are professionals, whether we are policymakers, or whether we are industry associations and reps. India cannot, India has to figure out what its ambition is, right? Um, in the current game, right? You know, often you will hear, Akash, even in the tech circles, that India is a talent nation. India is a services power. And we are very proud of that, and understandably so. I think what has happened in the last four decades since the IT revolution was kicked off by the Infosys of the world in India, I think that has been a fascinating four-decade journey for India, where India has gone from having a sort of a industrial, trying to catch up on the industrial era uh, as the world conceived it, to, a, to building out its own niche in a way in the global tech economy. But now I think the time has come for us to take that next leap. To say that we cannot be happy being just a talent nation. We cannot be happy just being a services nation. We've got to become what I call the tech nation, right? I mean, we cannot be a product nation either. That cannot be our ambition either. You'll hear that we need to transition from being a services nation to a product nation because product is where the money is. And that's absolutely right. But I think that tech nation means something even bigger than product nation. And what do I mean by that? It means that India must aim to be a player, a key player in all parts of that tech ecosystem that today is the great tech game, what I call the great tech game. Today, we cannot be happy saying that we have 100 unicorns. Today, we cannot be happy saying that we have a billion plus smartphone users or smartphones in the, in, in the country. You know, because all of what this means is that all of this implies only one thing, that we are a big consumer market. That's it. You know, but as I like to say, we were a big consumer market even during the British era. Right? That didn't mean that that game ended well for us. Right? And similarly yeah. today, we must understand what the real game being played is. The real game being played is, as I started, as we've talked about, who owns the tech infrastructure? And I'm not saying monopolize it, but at least be a player in that. Today, we have literally no companies that are building tech infrastructure between continents. We need to have companies There's doing room that. For we need to inspire. Yeah. That's right. So that's one, right? Tech infrastructure then also means not just on the hardware side. Of course, we're doing a massive semiconductor push now. That's, I think, a very good step. That's on the hardware side in a, in a tech perspective, not necessarily just the infrastructure right now. There's the tech hardware piece. There's also the element of uh, building out deeper layers in the software stack. Today, we are largely building out companies that are on the consumer-facing app side or the customer-facing apps, right? But the software stack, as tech, any tech um, expert will tell you, goes much deeper. And we were talking about this. There's the operating system, there's the middleware. Then there's the final yeah. aspect, which is the consumer-facing layer, right? Now, we've largely been playing on the consumer-facing layer. That's usually a very competitive space, right? But it's the companies that build out the middleware, the companies that build out the infrastructure layer, the operating system layer. These are the ones that build out moats, right? So Sridhar Vembu of Zoho has talked about this. He said that we have to go deeper into the software stack. To as yeah. a country, as a country of massive developer community, we must go deeper. That requires a little bit more patient capital, requires entrepreneurs, software developers to think sort of deeper 
and and attempt things that have not been attempted in india so far but really that's i think the goal on the software that's on the tech infrastructure there's also the element of how do you uh build out r&d capability in india right uh and this is a massive massive lacuna in our in our own uh, tech strategy right utkarsh as a nation we spend 0.6% of our gdp to maybe 0.7% of our gdp on r&d most countries even at our level of development historically were starting to spend much more than this and they company countries that we are trying to compete with are spending 3% of their gdp on r&d mm-hmm. right r&d is a core element of how or whether you will transition from being a services nation to being a tech nation. will the next generation qualcomms of the world cisco's of the world um you know five networks of the world be built out of india yes possibly but for that we'll need not just unicorns but we'll also need r&d capability in india today our capability in tech r&d is very very little of that 0.6% that i talk about most of it goes into pharma right right so we have to like completely reorient ourselves to say that much like we are doing a semiconductor push utkarsh and i'm not saying this the government has to do it the the private sector has to do this i think supported by the government or enabled by the government but we have to reshift our priorities towards r&d as well if we want to win in this great tech game otherwise yeah. we remain number 3 number 4 services nation talent nation but we will not capitalize on the on the real opportunity yeah yesterday at oxford um somebody who's the chief scientific advisor of the country the defense department she came and spoke to us and i was fascinated by how forward looking their investment is this is government related investment uh they were saying that we are interested in a in the generation after next and the patient capital that you talked about the forward looking technology investments that they're doing is also something that uh, other countries should look at and of course the sheer budget when i heard it was uh, was jaw dropping and uh, you know we have okay. in india a lot of room for um learning from others sharing what we know with others because in the great tech game it's not about whether uk is better us is better india is better but there's room for i think cooperation there's room for uh, competition but there is clearly things that countries can learn from each other and it's one of the reasons that uh, we need to facilitate that and your book does a great job of it tell me something what are what do the skeptics of your point of view say what are the hardest questions that you get when you speak at panels say when you went to raisina and spoke to the uh, afgg fellows i'm a fellow from the previous batch what was the hardest question that you got a question that made you pause yeah no i think that you no know, absolutely like fascinating community of uh, fellows by the way and you know so congratulations to you you've been part of that community i think um i i was super impressed with the quality and diversity of questions that that were like thrown at me that day uh that evening you know one of the ones that i remember utkarsh is a question asked by um one of the fellows from germany i believe she asked me that you know in the great tech game uh when i frame it as a global competition 
as you rightly saying cooperation seems to take a back seat by definition almost right and i and i had to i had to uh, step back and say yes you're absolutely right competition seems to make it seem as if cooperation is secondary but as you rightly saying actually co- competition and cooperation have to go hand in hand we cannot live in a world that is completely just um cutthroat competition driven because many of the problems that we are facing today are no longer just national problems unlike in the past right where they might have been like regional problems or national problems or local today the problems the biggest problems we are facing let's say climate these are global problems right and so the question uh, this particular fellow asked me was she asked me her name was daniela she asked me daniela asked me if the competition on the tech side and the economic side and geopolitical side is going to internet that you know you and i have spoken at length about now today if that is inevitable now what is the future and fate of the world when it comes to climate solving the climate problem because there unless we have vision it's clear to everyone that we will not succeed as humanity as a world right uh, as a species and and i think that one of the toughest questions now i think that the world is faced with and the world's leaders are faced with right it's very easy for the us to say hey listen we don't want china to be part of the 5g networks of the world it's very easy for us big tech firms to withdraw from russia very easy decisions but are they the most far sighted decisions i'm not so sure right because as we make this split of the world on the tech and economic side more inevitable so i think utkarsh the biggest challenge will be that if we continue heading towards split internet split technological systems split financial systems right as the geopolitics seems to be indicating i think global governance problems like climate that require countries to cooperate where comp- cannot be the dominant dynamic i think those will really suffer and that's really the question that you know when i was posed at the raisana fellows conversation they also said that listen the only way out of this is if we as a world as europe as india as southeast asia countries and rather than the us or china bring our own uh, values and strengths to bear to make sure that the world doesn't head towards a split world I think that's a, it's it's a tough one that's probably the toughest one yeah i think any kind of complex coordination is is really difficult and the new world order the new technology order that we live in just having that right mix of cooperation shared understanding uh, is going to be important and we've shown the world that we can do it the pandemic is a great example of scientific collaboration not so Absolutely. much of technical collaboration and i think your book does help us think through many of these issues critically just wanted to uh, ask if there's any parting advice concluding thoughts that you'd like to share with the listeners of the show no i think you've you've absolutely captured the key lesson utkarsh that i think we have as a world shown it uh, mm-hmm. and even though recent months might make it seem as if you know we are heading for a uh, a uh, 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 tense geopolitical time in the world i think you're absolutely right that the world has shown that 
when it comes to it, there is the possibility for cooperation for, as I say in the book, for values to lead, right? And for not for competition and tech to lead. As a world, as a community, as individuals, as entrepreneurs, as professionals, keep it clear that ultimately the values that we hold dear must drive how tech shapes us, how tech is used, how tech is designed. I think that is an important starting point for it. So where values determine and shape tech as much as tech shapes us, right? I think that that path cannot be one way where tech and whatever is leading to, right? Economically and geopolitically continues yeah. to shape us, right? That cannot be a one-way road, one-way street. It has to become a two-way street where we have these kinds of conversations, right? Like you and I are having today. And mm. I hope that, you know, the, the network capital community continues to have is how do we want to shape tech? How do we want to shape the design of tech? How do we want to shape the use of tech in ways that it helps us adhere and live up to the values that we hold dear? Right, and what are those values? Those values have to also be debated on, upon, etc. Right, but it, it has to be values first, I think, um, and not values as an afterthought. Values as an afterthought cannot be there. Um, you know, if we want to shape an equitable world. Thank you very much, Anirudh. Um, congrats on you know writing a fantastic book for raising such thought-provoking questions. Of course, trying to make tech accessible to your NFTs, which I think is such a brilliant idea. Congratulations for that. And see you in a few weeks as faculty for our, uh, you know, Web3 Crypto and Community Building Fellowship. I think people will love to see how writers and investors are also community builders. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you so much for having me on the, uh, on this uh, conversation, Utkash, and enjoy your time in Oxford as well. Um, and I look forward to, uh, uh, chatting again soon. Looking forward, Anurag. Take care. Bye.